you know, things are so imbalanced within every industry, but definitely in the recording industry and in the music industry, misogyny is the root of so much of the harm in the world. I mean, truly the root. And one of the things that I've realized is it's actually self-hatred for so many males. And that's very sad. Like the hating of females comes from the hating of themselves first. Feeling insecure and feeling inadequate and feeling unloved and feeling unlovable and all of those things and that turning toxic and violent to want to what keep women down to feel powerful. I mean, they don't exist without a woman. And that's part of, I think, the fear. Like hatred is just fear wearing a hideous mask and a dangerous, violent mask. And until it isn't remarkable to have a stage full of women, an album full of women, I'm going to keep doing it, you know, because as soon as it's not remarkable, I won't need to anymore. That was Alison Russell. And this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, Shiro's Radio. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. Grammy season is upon us, and while I have mixed feelings about awards in general, on February the 4th, there's one artist in particular that I will be rooting for. She's up for four Grammys this year, and if I could wave my Shiro's magic wand, Alison Russell would win them all. Best Americana Album, Best American Roots Song, and Best Americana Performance, and Best American Roots Performance. The album is The Returner, another triumphant, creative leap forward for this accomplishment. Montreal-born singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist, poet, and activist who has over two decades of hard work as a career musician with over a dozen albums across three bands to her name, including Poe Girl, Birds of Chicago, and most recently the supergroup Our Native Daughters with Rhiannon Giddens, Amethyst Kia, and Layla McCalla. But it was Outside Child, Alison Russell's critically acclaimed and four-time Grammy-nominated 2021 solo debut that set off what has been a whirlwind three years of awards, accolades, touring, headlining Newport Folk Festival, collaborating, activism, and building what she calls the Rainbow Coalition. Outside Child was a chronicle of escaping from childhood abuse and trauma to finding healing and chosen family in art, music, and community. And The Returner is the next chapter, a celebration of survivor's joy. It's for all of these reasons that I have fingers and toes crossed that Alison Russell will take home every award she is nominated for. And once you hear today's conversation and listen to The Returner, I know you'll be rooting for her too. I'm so thrilled to welcome back Allison Russell as this week's Shiro in the Spotlight. Allison Russell, welcome back to Shiro. Carmel Holt, I'm so happy to be here. Oh my God. <laughs> it has been a crazy couple of years yeah. since you and I last talked. Yeah, it's been absolute madness. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> Okay, why don't we start with the present, Okay, which is you got all of these Grammy nominations for your amazing new album, The Returner. Yeah, just incredible. When I woke up to actually Brandi Carlile and her wife, Catherine, were the first people to text 
about it. So I realized, oh, we must have been nominated. And I assumed we got a nomination. And then throughout the day, my phone kept exploding. We were on the road, you know, we were in the van. I didn't have great service. And then by the time I got out of the van, I found out we'd been nominated for four Grammy Awards for the returner. So it was totally surreal and shocking and joyful and uplifting, you know, incredible. Yeah. What do award nominations mean to you? Well, it's really impactful, particularly awards like the Recording Academy Grammys and the Americana Music Awards, because it's a peer review. It's other artists that I cherish and love and have looked up to and have been listening to since I was in utero in some cases, like with Joni Mitchell. Yeah. And to be recognized by the creative community of our peers and musical heroes and sheroes is really meaningful. You know, it's circle work. You know, that's to me what the award nominations are. It's building coalition and power and agency for our music community. You know, and organizations like Music Cares, which we all support through the Recording Academy and through various fundraisers that we do, that in turn supported so many of us through the pandemic, you know, and the lockdown. It's such an important organization. I think people get confused sometimes about the pageantry and the silly theater on the surface level competition aspect of award ceremonies, but that's really not what it's about. It's so much about growing the power and the agency and the inclusivity of the community. Right. And it's also about creating more room exactly. <laughs> for those that there haven't historically exactly. been room for. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's part of what was so stunning to me among the nominations for Eve Was Black to be nominated for an American Roots Performance Award was so thrilling and unexpected. And it really really honors the whole circle of the Rainbow Coalition of women that contributed to it, Sister Strings and Joy Clark and Megan Coleman and Elena Kanlas and Elizabeth Pupa Walker and Lisa Coleman from Wendy and Lisa, Ganessa James. It really uplifts everyone that was part of it. And for that song in particular to be heard and amplified means so much to me. Let's dive into that a little bit too, yeah. because I know that that song was actually predates mm -hmm. the album. It's the earliest song that was now yeah. included in you know, the album. It's funny. It had a whole journey. It actually yeah. started as a poem that I wrote, Eve Was Black or Oya's Kin, in 2021, and that I submitted to The New Yorker actually unsuccessfully. <laughs> no way. Yeah, as a poem. But it kind of stayed with me in this strange way. And usually when I write poetry, it's separate from lyric writing and songwriting. But I got commissioned to do a collaborative piece with the Nashville Ballet with a choreographer originally from Montreal, a fellow Caribbean Canadian named Kevin Thomas. He now has a dance company in Memphis called Collage Dance. He came as a guest choreographer to Nashville and I was paired up with him to provide music for a, a choreography. So we collaborated and the piece we ended up doing was a musical version of Eve Was Black. And that was the first iteration of Eve Was Black. And I invited Sister Strings to join me on that. So the first iteration was just a string and voice piece alone with me on banjo and vocals. And Sister Strings came and did the earliest iteration of a string arrangement for it. And we performed it live with these incredible ballet dancers. And when I started working on the bulk of The Returner, I realized that it lived within that world and that it was actually part of the backbone of The Returner album. I think of three songs as being sort of the backbone of the whole Returner journey. And it's Eve Was Black, Demons and Snake Life. 
You said how meaningful it was slash is for that song to get so much recognition. Can you expand on that a little bit before we play a clip of it? Yeah, well, you know, it's not on the surface a song that's easily palatable for a lot of folks. It could be heard as challenging, I think. And I am never, ever ever calling out in anything that I'm doing. I'm always calling in. I'm always calling back into the circle. But the song, the piece, the poem began really as an open letter almost to my abuser, who is a former abuser, I should say, because I've long since left, thankfully, that situation. Mm. But my adoptive father, who was born in 1936 in a sundown town in Indiana and was abused ideologically by that violent ideology of white supremacy, who was abused physically by his violent white supremacist family and who was unable to resolve that trauma to the extent that he unfortunately repeated the cycle and brought all of that with him when he moved to Montreal because you can't run away from yourself. And he paid it forward and tortured me for a decade. But I don't have hatred for him at all anymore. I don't even have anger anymore. I have a lot of sadness. I've come to a place of being able to see that within that person who hurt me so badly is a child that was severely abused and that child is still there. And I don't want to live in a world where we don't have empathy for children who have been abused to behave in poor ways. Um, and it's really hard to navigate those two things being true at the same time. But I think that's part of, for me, my process of healing and breaking the cycle and taking responsibility for myself and my actions and how I parent my child and the compassion that I've begun to be able to extend for myself. I'm learning how to extend to people who do great harm as well because nobody is actually a monster. They might behave monstrously, but they're not actually monsters. And I think we're being called in this time to sit with all of that in a really, really big way. And if we can't get to a point of humanizing those who do monstrous things, if we continue to dehumanize people, the cycles will never stop and the violence will grow and the vengeance will grow and the retribution will grow and the destruction will grow and it will grow and it will grow and it will grow, and it will grow until it pushes us off the cliff of our own mass extinction. And I feel really strongly as a mother that I want to prevent that. And so I'm facing my own tormentors, both internal and external, and understanding that this man is a human. He's deeply flawed, deeply traumatized, and became deeply abusive, but he's a human being. And so this song, Eve Was Black, is a calling in. It refers to my micro situation, but it also talks about the macro situation of what a legacy of enslavement means for all of us. The fact that there is no such thing as a separate black race or a separate white race or a separate anything race. There's the human race. Yes, multiple ethnicities and experiences and histories and legacies and lineages, but one human family. And if we cannot get over our tribal violence, we have no hope. And so that song, Eve Was Black, is this calling in, but I'm talking about lynching within the song. I'm talking about enslavement of one's own children, which that's my legacy of my history and what I lived with my adoptive father as well. I lived in bondage for a decade in my life. And there are many children living in bondage 
slavery isn't over, unfortunately, you know, and we see this everywhere. We see this in the Middle East. We see this in Africa, all over the Sudan, what is happening in Sudan right now, what is happening in Congo right now. We are seeing it everywhere. I don't have much to throw at these problems, but songs and truth and uncomfortable paths of inquiry that hopefully lead to some reconciliation or at least some reconciling within my own mind, you know? So yeah, and now I'm struggling with, do I go see this man? You know, he's ill, he's old. Part of me feels like the culmination of my own journey of healing is to be able to forgive him. And I believe I have, but how deep does that go? And does he have no power over me anymore? And I believe that he doesn't. Do I have enough strength and safety within myself to go see that person and say, I forgive you, go in peace. Mm. I want to be able to do that. I'm not sure if I'll be able to, we'll see. That's what I'm wrestling with right now. But I think that song was part of my journey to get there. I think what's happening in the world right now is part of my journey to get there because if I expect other people to forgive those who've harmed them, I need to be able to do it too. He was blessed, haven't you heard? The mother of all was dark and good. He was black, didn't you know? Is that why you hate my black skin so? Is that why you hate my black skin so? you lost do you hate or do you lust do you despise or do you yearn to return to return to return back to the motherland back to the garden back to your black skin back to the innocence back to the shine you lost when you enslaved your kids Eve was black from Alison Russell's new album, The Returner. She's our guest today on Shiro's and I'm Carmel Holt. You know, it was interesting because you said the micro and the macro. Yeah. And it's been really inspiring to see what has happened since Outside Child. And I think about the macro of what you're putting out into the world and the micro of your experience of having lived that and reliving it now and it's kind of this double-edged sword almost like throwing yourself on the sword for the greater good for the macro for all of those that don't have a voice or don't have a platform but for myself as well and for yourself you know for me it feels empowering to speak and sing about the things that I was taught to feel shame about that I was Mm. believed at one point I couldn't go on living because of, you know, and so to have gotten to the point where I can speak and sing about it and to have the feedback from so many people that it is helping them with their journeys through their trauma and their childhood experiences, that means a lot to me. That actually gives me strength, but you're right, you know, day to day, it's not always easy. One of the things that I realized was how hard on my daughter it's been, how much of outside child she really, really processed and it really, you know, she's still struggling with that reality of that this happened to her mother. And what does that mean that this happens to children in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, she loves the returner because for her, it feels like 
coming out of the dark tunnel, a much more joyful record. And she was very pleased that we wrote her some bangers. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've seen you refer to it like that. And I, I oh, love she, that so she, much. She threw down the gauntlet. Yeah, she, gave her, yeah. she gave her dad and I the challenge. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. She was like, mom, you, when are you going to stop singing sad songs about your sad past? <laughs> like, literally. Yeah. So, yeah. I was like, okay, Ida, I'm going to give you some brighter ones. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. It is more joyful. Yeah. And yeah. it's still... Yeah carries through some of the same themes. It's almost like the next step in your journey. And I've also yeah. heard that this is the second in a trilogy. Yeah. So I was right. hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about Outside Child as the past, yeah. Returner as the present, yeah. and then what we could look forward to as the future. Yeah. The next one will be the Rainbow Coalition, Afro Bright Future of My Dreams, you know. The third one, I don't even want to speak on too much yet because I'm yeah. trying to do something very ambitious that involves geographic challenges as well. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. But I'm really excited about it. And if I pull it off, I think it will be a really magical collaborative cross-pollination experience. I'm just going to like jump right in here <laughs> and say to you, Alison Russell, the yeah. same thing that I said to you two years ago, <laughs> you can pull it off. There is if there is one person in the world that I know that can pull this kind of thing off, any kind of magic, it's you. All right. We'll see. I, I so appreciate your vote of confidence. <laughs> and I've seen it in action. Uh, for I've those of you listening who don't know what Carmela's referencing, she is the one who suggested to me that I could curate the final set of the reemergence of Newport in 2021, which was also my debut as a solo artist there. It's solo in name only, of course, because it's all about the Rainbow Coalition. I put together a collaborative piece called Once in Future Sounds, Roots and Revolution. And we had the most incredible stage full of magical goddesses like Shaka Khan, like Joy Oladukun, like Adia Victoria, like Amethyst Kia and Yasmin Williams and Cam Franklin and Yola and Celise and Brandy Carlisle, of course, and Margot Price and Lucius popped up and Megan Coleman and, and Sister Strings were there and Larissa Maestro totally. and like just this incredible, incredible. Caroline Randall Williams came and did wrote poetry especially for it and was yeah. sort of the interlocutor. It was this magical thing. And we were honoring Mother Odetta, of course, as the folk mother of Newport and really the folk mother of America. Yeah. It's just so yeah. wild. Like, okay, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but <laughs> sitting across from you now and just thinking, you know, it's like trying to download and process. I can only imagine how it is for you to think back on that yeah. because I just hear your words going, I'm not Brandy. I can't do this. And I'm like, yes, you can. And you're not going to do it alone. Uh, yeah. And, and Brandy helped, to be fair. She helped us get shocked. Uh, yes. Yes, yeah. she did. And then I think fast forward two years later, there I am for my 50th birthday. Allison and I are, are birthday twins. We both have May 30th as our birthday. She's a few years behind me. But there I was at the Gorge yeah. watching you on stage. Oh. With Joni Mitchell. Oh, isn't that incredible? What the hell? <laughs> like, not only have you been able to pull uh, all of this off, but like, talk about Shiro's. Uh, Dude. Oh, Joni. Come on. Joni. The gift that she's given us 
the gift that she's given us by choosing to come back and play yeah. for us all again. Crazy. And that incredible record yeah. of the comeback at Newport. Yeah. Joni Mitchell yep. at Newport. Yep. And I'm there on for that too. a record. You are. With one of the most foundational formative artists of our times, yeah. of my life, certainly. I mean, literally, I was listening to her in utero because she's my mother, Kathy's favorite musician. Right? Isn't that okay? Favorite wait, musician. I wanted to. I wanted to fact check this with you yeah. in real time. So, if I'm remembering this right, isn't there a Joni Mitchell clarinet yes. connection, like yes. from Ladies of the Canyon? Yes. Yes. So my first musical memory, strong musical memory of hearing an album, was being at my grandmother's house. She had a piano. I was in foster care at this point, but allowed visitation rights with my mother and my grandmother. And we would go to my grandma's house. My mom was playing piano along to her favorite album, Ladies of the Canyon. And there's a deeper cut on that record, a song called For Free. And it's a song about Joni hearing this beautiful busker who's playing clarinet for free for the people on the street and being ignored because they've never been on the TV. And she's musing on you know, her path of stroking the star maker machinery and this busker. And she wants to go over and sing them a song with them, but she ends up, you know, light changes and life goes on and, and that's it. And the song ends with this beautiful coda of a clarinet solo. And I'm hiding under the piano, watching my mom's feet on the pedals, seeing her arms moving above me, feeling the music like an embrace around me. And when I heard the clarinet on for free, I was electrified by that sound. That was the first time I heard the clarinet and it imprinted on me and I knew that I loved it. And so Joni Mitchell leads me to Benny Goodman, leads me to Sidney Bechet, leads me to Eric Dolphy. Right. But it started with Joni. And just dialing back uh, a couple minutes ago, when we were talking about that Newport set. Yeah. I did a little bit of memory jogging because a lot has happened in two years. You and I had a bunch of back and forth. And in our text thread, there is one day that you said something about Wendy and Lisa. Yes. We were like brainstorming about like yes. Prince and like, yes. -da -da -da, and then like, you're like, and what about Wendy and Lisa? So yeah. now fast forward again. Yes. Well, they play on my they record. They play on your record. And they're now like, my big sisters. Like, what? And I love them so much. Yeah, I feel like I started manifesting it right then. Totally. Like you, it, you were yeah, like conjuring was so much yeah, in that yeah. moment. Crazy. Let's talk about another track on the album. Why don't we talk about the opening track, Springtime? Okay. Because I know that you don't do anything without intentionality. Talk to us about the song and why this ended up being the opener for The Returner. You know, for a long time, we were going back and forth between would it be demons or would it be springtime as the opener? And it just became clear to me and to everybody, to JT and Drew, his partner in Dimstar, that that needed to be the opener, that that needed to herald in, this is the present. This is stealing joy from the teeth of turmoil and tragedy and loss. This is being re-embodied. This is joy in movement and the circle of beloved chosen family and creative collaborators. And the way that that track was recorded, you know, we recorded Returner in six days, the entire album. Of course, we did our homework of pre-production and had lots of back and forth with Larissa Maestro and Sister Strings who were working on the string arrangements and with everybody involved because we knew we were going to be moving fast. 
and we had six days over the winter solstice, December 2022. Oh, almost a happy anniversary. Yeah, yeah. isn't that wild? Yeah. It is. We're really close to the time when this was the deep gestation period for the returner this time last year. Also, wasn't it a studio where Joni worked? Yes. Speaking of Joni? Yes. And this is because of Wendy and Lisa. And it was also serendipitous. Like initially, we were not going to be recording until February of this year. But because of vinyl delays everywhere, the label came to me and said, look, if you want to have vinyl when the record comes out, you've got to turn it in before the end of 2022. And so we all got together and it turned out that all 16 women and our three chosen brothers could make it happen in that little window before the holidays in December. But in order to do that, we'd have to go to Wendy and Lisa and do it in LA rather than Nashville, which was the original plan was to do it at the Sound Emporium in Nashville where we recorded Outside Child. But in order for Wendy and Lisa to be involved on this new earlier timeline, we would have to go to LA. And everybody said, absolutely. None of us wanted to miss the chance to work with Wendy and Lisa. And they have their own studio for 16 years now upstairs at the old AM Studios, which is now Henson Studios. So Jim Henson's company bought it. It's presided over by Kermit the Frog now. But it started its life as Charlie Chaplin's studio in West Hollywood. And then it became the old AM Records studio. So the good ghosts in those walls, Joni recorded Court and Spark and Blue there. Carol King recorded Tapestry there. They sang We Are the World there. Shaka Khan has guested and I don't know how many recordings on drums in that very Studio D, you know. So it's got this incredible, incredible history. I mean, if you start looking up AM records and what all was recorded there, it's just extraordinary. Bananas. It's bananas. Yeah. And for us to get to go there and be with our sisters who loaned us all their incredible vintage gear, all these fun, a water phone. I got to play a water phone from the 1940s on Snake Life that what Lisa that has. Even? It is this, go- it looks like a golden chalice with kind of almost like organ pipes coming up out of it, like really skinny organ pipes. And you fill it with water and you play these sort of tines coming up out of it with a bow. And it's sort of a cross between, it almost sounds like a theremin or a wailing ghost. It is the most joyful. And Lisa gave me a water phone as a gift at the end of the sessions. So I have my own water phone now because of Lisa Coleman's generosity and kindness. Crazy. Crazy. But it was magical and serendipitous. And we all felt the mojo in the walls. And also part of it, I think, was that solstice time and coming to the longest night and then coming back to the light. Like we went on that journey all together and springtime. I think we only did two takes of springtime. Like it just joyfully, spontaneously came together. All my vocals, lead vocals were recorded live with the band in real time. We were literally in a circle formation. Studio D is almost like a womb with several like fallopian tubes coming off of it. That there are these little separate rooms. So within the womb of the main room, you had Elizabeth Pupa Walker on the percussion, Joy Clark on an acoustic guitar, Ganessa James on her electric bass, Megan McCormick and Mandy Fair on electric guitars over here. And then you had a little fallopian tube area, womb area for the keys. And that was Lisa and Elena in this room, just filled with every possible, a beautiful piano, but also synthesizers and a B3 and a Wurlitzer and um, vintage Moog, vintage Korgs, all this stuff. And then there was another room for the drums where Megan Coleman and Victoria Bialik were in that room. And then Elizabeth Pupa Walker right in front of them. And then 
when we would finish the bed, so getting that down, then the strings would go in and overdub. So Sister Strings and Larissa Maestro, they would go in and play it all together. And Carenza Peacock, when she joined on a couple of them, they would play it live all together. And I was in the room filming them while they did it, you know. And then when we sang the harmonies, it was everybody getting together in the same room, go back in that same womb. And we just did it. We did everything at once. And so we had the best of both worlds of the analog of that live almost feeling and that laughter and those sounds that's Larissa and sister strings goofing around and it's Brandon Bell capturing every minute of it and I wanted people to feel invited into our rainbow coalition circle from the first notes and that it became clear that that's what springtime did provided that invitation into the circle calling in always calling in never calling out never leaving out Allison Russell here with us. The new album is The Returner, and that's the opener, Springtime. Of course, as you're painting this heroic picture <laughs> of what happened in the studio, yeah. I'm getting chills and like, I can't stop smiling. We felt the same way. I mean, we were so joyful, like we felt high and we weren't, you know, we were stone cold sober, yeah. but we felt this giddiness being together. And part of it was the transitions of the earth. And it was just the magic of those walls and being together and being with a group of women who are completely open to each other. There's not one bit of ego. There's not one bit of insecurity. Everybody is a complete virtuoso as an instrumentalist, as an artist, as a writer. And they're all lead singers in their own right. They're all songwriters in their own right. They're all multi-instrumentalists. They've all been part of numerous projects. So these are artists who are fully formed coming to be supportive of these songs that Dim Star and I wrote, you know, and what a gift that is because they like the songs, you know, they chose to be in service of those songs and we were in community together and it was circle work. Yes, there was the bones of the songs that were written, but what happened in the studio was a live and improvised musical conversation mm. and there was the structure, but then because there was the structure, we were able to play, to fully play like little children. And it was joyful. We were giddy. We were laughing and we were crying and we were dancing and we were singing and we were just loving on each other and falling in love with each other. And for Wendy and Lisa, that was their first time being in the studio with any of us and our first time being in the studio with them. And we just, it, it was like a love affair 
they're our beloved chosen big sisters. Now, Wendy dubbed us Volvatron. <laughs> I love that. At Volvatron forming. And we still, she started a text thread with all of us, all 16 of us. And we have, our Volvatron thread is always popping, you know? I love that. Yeah. I mean, Supporting I can only imagine what that meant for them. And it's both the biggest source of joy to think about so many women together and like how powerful that is. And also like gets me worked up because I think, why is it that that's still so unusual? And I'm so grateful to you for continuing to push on that and to making those intentional choices from the top to bottom. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's so imbalanced still, right? We know this and we're seeing we are in a reactionary wave of a lot of bigotry and fascism rearing its ugly head once again. And this is a cyclical thing that has happened throughout our human history. We know this and this too shall pass. And no, the fascists never win, but they do a heck of a lot of damage while they're in power. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, things are so imbalanced within every industry, but definitely in the recording industry and in the music industry, misogyny is the root of so much of the harm in the world. I mean, truly the root. And one of the things that I've realized is it's actually self-hatred for so many males. And that's very sad. Like the hating of females comes from the hating of themselves first, right? And feeling insecure and feeling inadequate and feeling unloved and feeling unlovable and all of those things and that turning toxic and violent, you know, to want to what keep women down to feel powerful. I mean, they're not in the world without a woman. (laughs) They don't exist without a woman. And that's part of, I think, the fear. Like hatred is just fear wearing a hideous mask and a dangerous, violent mask. But it's fear at its base. And until it isn't remarkable to have a stage full of women, an album full of women, I'm going to keep doing it, you know, because as soon as it's not remarkable, I won't need to anymore. It'll be fine. We won't have an imbalance. There won't be an issue. But it is still so remarkable. And you're right. It shouldn't be. It's a real bummer (laughs) that it is. (laughs) You know, and and it's funny, too, because I think about how long you've been at this. 20 years. This year marks 20 years since my first baby band, Poe Girl, put out our first record self-titled in 2003. Oh, my God, Allison. It's 20 years. It really hit me this year, Carmel, especially as I I did a bunch of the Canadian Folk Fest this summer. And, you know, my first ever Canadian Folk Fest was the Vancouver Folk Music Festival in 2003 with my baby band, Poe Girl, and an amazing artistic director there named Doug Simpson, who believed in us and who put us on stage with Odetta, with Ani DeFranco, with Martin Joseph, with Utah Phillips, with these iconic artists. I got to meet Odetta before she died when I was in my little baby band because of that festival. So I really felt the full circle of that I have been doing this for 20 years and that everything that's happening now for me as a solo artist in name only for the Rainbow Coalition, for these two albums that we have created so far is a culmination of 20 years of relationship building and of circle work. Hell yeah. And also I think about the ageism that goes along with that misogyny and the sexism and... 
that it's taken you this long mm-hmm. to get there. But like, look at you and yeah. look at look at you fucking owning it. I mean, the imagery of this album too, you're owning it. You're yeah. owning your physical form, your sensuality, your sexuality, your beauty, and how meaningful that is to yeah. women who are paying attention, who know that you're not 20. No, you I'm know? not 20. No, I'm a 44-year-old soccer mom. And a survivor at that. (laughs) And a survivor. And there's no joy more powerful than survivor's joy. You don't get hard-won joy, fierce joy like that if you haven't been to a very bleak place in the past. If you haven't been to rock bottom, you can't soar to the highest heights. That's what I think. You know, and that's one of the gifts of trauma. Trauma can be the mother of empathy. It can be the mother of joy. It can be the mother of connection. It can be the mother of compassion and understanding. And it's hard to remember that when we are going through miserable, horrible, painful, awful things. It's hard to feel it in those times. We can't. We can only feel it later. But that's why campaigns like It Gets Better are so important. That's why having those of us who are able to speak about the past and how much better it got, why I feel so compelled to do so. Because there's plenty of people who are living what I have lived right now who feel like it can never get better. And why do they even continue, right? We are having an epidemic of our young ones, especially especially our queer youth and our trans youth and our non-binary youth, you know, and our intersectional BIPOC youth choosing to leave the world. And it's an epidemic. It's really bad. A vast amount of gun violence in our country is our young people taking their own lives. And I really think one of the cruelest things we could ever say to a young person struggling through coming of age is to tell them these are the best years of your life because that is such bullshit. And it's bullshit for the cheerleader and it's bullshit for the quarterback or whatever who's supposedly living the dream. They're equally lost and miserable at that age. It's just an incredibly hard transitional time of life. It's metamorphosis and metamorphosis is painful. It's excruciating, you know? And so we cannot be telling youth, this is the best time of your life. These are the best years of your life. You have to tell them the truth, which is, yeah, this is really hard and miserable for most of us, but it does get better. I promise if it can get better for me, it can get better for anyone. And that's part of why I feel so strongly about singing my experiences and sharing them. Alison Russell, it's been so awesome to have you here on Shiro's. We could obviously talk (laughs) for an hour more, but we're out of time. How should we go out today? Oh, well, I'd love to go out on Ragchild because it's kind of an incantation for that. It's a spell for realizing our own strength and beauty and worthiness and with learning how to love ourselves of finding joy on the other side of severe trauma and tragedy and loss. And I think we all need to hang on to the truth that that is possible in these times where there's so much trauma and tragedy and loss.
Thanks again to Allison yeah. Russell. Thank you for being with us Thank on Cheeros. Congratulations on all the success with the returner. And you know that I'm going to be cheering on February 4th <laughs> when you take home those Grammys. Uh, it, the nominations to me are everything. I'm just excited about the big old family reunion and getting all dressed up and having fun and dancing with our beloved community. Thanks so much. Thank you. Many thanks to Allison Russell for being with us. The Returner is out now on Fantasy Records. Our interview was recorded at Levon Helm Studios in Woodstock, New York, sending thanks to the staff there. She Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit SheRoseRadio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at Shiro's Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 